I absolutely love London. It's got to be one of my favourite places to visit. Although whenever I go, it does take me a few hours to kind of get a feel for the city, so to speak. Whenever I arrive, it, it's so different from what I'm used to. It's this massive, fast-paced city that is actually quite scary in a way. But after just a few hours, it's transformed into this vibrant, beautiful city that's full of life as I kind of, I don't know, tap into the rhythm, so to speak, I suppose. It's just a great place just to walk around. You'll, you'll find something somewhere. You don't have to be looking for anything. You just turn a corner and you'll find a part that you didn't know was there or an amazing view. It's just a great city. Hello. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Well, this podcast is a week late. Let's blame Christmas and New Year. Mostly, that's a lie, of course, since as I'm sure you know me well enough by now, I'm not the sort of person that celebrates it. In fairness, I did this time at least have an excuse. As you know from my last episode, Laura spent the holiday period with me, and much of the time she was here, we were either chatting in the living room or out exploring places in and around Glasgow. And by exploring places, I mainly mean the Scotia Bar and Stockwell Street, or the Weatherspoons in Shawlands. We did have two marginally disappointing trips too, to be fair. One to the west end of Glasgow to look at the Christmas lights in the cloisters of Glasgow University, which uh, weren't switched on at the time we visited, and one to Edinburgh to look around the Christmas lights there and visit the Christmas market. The former was underwhelming, and the latter looked both underwhelming and had a huge queue to get inside. So in both cases, pubs were the satisfactory outcome. We did have an enjoyable visit to Stirling, though, despite the weather. I've almost certainly been to Stirling before, but it would have been a long time ago when my age was a single figure and I had no recollection of the place at all. It used to be the capital of Scotland and it has a large castle which is interesting to have an exploration of. It's another damning indictment of history lessons at English schools that much of what was on the information boards is nothing we ever learn about. One could argue, well why would we? It was a different country then. But one could counter-argue that as we're not taught about Scotland, or Wales for that matter, that explains a lot of English attitudes towards those states. Ireland is a whole different issue. For another pod, probably with a different host. I also met up with my friend and ex-landlady from my Sheffield days. She's originally from a small village near Dumbarton and she was up visiting her family for New Year. It made sense for us to meet up and, <clears throat> as it happens, go to the pub. Not that she's a drinker at all, by the way, but like I need an excuse to drink beer. I'd actually never been to that end of the Glasgow conurbation before. Well, I'd passed through it on a train, but it was raining that day, so I wasn't paying attention. So it was quite interesting to see, especially as we walked around the marina at the end of the Forth and Clyde Canal, which I'd walked much of the length of on my hike across Great Britain in the summer of 2019. What else have I done? Well, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know I've recently buying new clothes, specifically dungarees. This is something I clicked with in autumn last year, so it's quite a recent thing, but I'm really taken with the vibe and style. 
I've got two new pairs, one which is a speckled paint design from Locket Loves, who I get all my funky running leggings from, but I may have overestimated how fat I am, so they're really baggy. Very, very comfortable though, and they have these waist pockets that you could hide a badger in. They're also really long, like I'm not the standard market for these leggings, but they reach to my ankles, which, you know, pretty awesome. The other pair are from Run and Fly via Minimum Mouse, and they fit better because I didn't overestimate. They have a nice blue daisy motif, obviously, and they have a chest pocket as well as the side pockets. These though, and I bought them specifically and despite this, call it an experiment on my port. They're short, so the leg ends are just above the knee. I'm really body dysphoric about my legs, but my theory was that by buying them I could force myself to get used to how they look and get over that internalised issue. Or I could just wear them with leggings. Well, not the weather for them at the moment. Have you ever been to Glasgow? I have worn them in public a couple of times, and I felt surprisingly more comfortable than I expected in them. We won't yet talk about the tertiary feelings I had when I was wearing them. My identity is very, uh, shall we say, flexible, it appears. I've also discovered the existence, related, sort of, of uh, an LGBTQIA running group in Glasgow as they're acting as the marshals and volunteers at my local parkrun's most recent race. I haven't had the social nerve to actually go visit them yet, but I'm working on that. Indeed, I'm running a pub writing the introduction to this episode on the evening that they meet up. But I have time. Also, I'm slightly unfit. Because, you know, not done a lot over Christmas and New Year, because I got distracted by someone who's a very bad influence. Anyway, this is the third episode where I talk about London. It's strange to think this was only going to be one episode. Who knew there was so much to say about the London suburbs? Not me. I mean, well, given the paucity of contributions, almost none of you either. But that's another story. Or maybe I just waffle too much. This episode will look at those boroughs north of the River Thames and east of an arbitrary line I created because I figured my last episode was too long. The logical boundary would have been either the A1 or the River Lee, but neither turned out quite suitable. But we begin this episode with a borough that's kind of in a city, one that's very often visited, but which is only ever mostly really passed through. Ladies, gentlemen, and esteemed friends, I give you Islington. I wasn't sure whether or not to include Islington, given that it's a fairly central borough and one which, like Hillingdon from the last episode, sees an awful lot of tourists pass through, given that the King's Cross St Pancras rail terminals lie right next to it but they're in Camden. And I'm going to use this opportunity to vaguely rant about Camden Borough for a moment. Not for the same reason as Laura in the first London episode, though, though this is much more geographic. Camden is a very odd shape, and it's bigger than you think. Most people, when they think of Camden, they think of Camden Town. They think of the markets, that sort of thing. But no. When walking through central London, when going, oh, where's that? The answer seems to invariably be Camden. Euston and King's Cross stations. Camden. British Library. Camden. Fitzrovia and Bloomsbury. Camden. Grey's Inn Court. Posh buildings, posher lawyers. Camden. Jewish Museum. Camden. Hampstead Heath. Camden. Primrose Hill. Camden. BT Tower. Camden. Highgate Cemetery. Camden. Of course it is, because everything's in fecking Camden. Even Drury Lane, famous for being in Theatreland, is partly in Camden. If the border were one street further south, it'd be touching Covent Garden. I could do an entire podcast on Camden Borough but I probably won't. Anyway, Islington. Now, I said at the start of my first of these London episodes, I wanted to track London outside of the Monopoly board. 
But here we have an exception, because I'm fond of exceptions and I'm breaking my own rules. Now, in case you're lucky enough not to be aware, Monopoly is one of the standard board games beloved of families, especially at Christmas or on long winter Sunday evenings. It's a weird choice for a family favourite, in the sense that its whole gameplay seems to be to cause as much harm to your competitors as possible. It's a regular cause of arguments and fallings out, and very often the game ends not when someone wins, uh, more like when someone loses so badly that they fling the board off the table, the small plastic houses and hotels being buried in the carpet, until the next time someone walks barefoot to the television. The board is divided into 40 squares. 22 of them represent streets, and the idea is to buy properties on them so that your competitors land on those squares and give you all their money. Cutthroat capitalism at its finest. The reason the game was made in the first place, incidentally. Though the original game is based on somewhat random streets in Atlantic City, New Jersey, USA, for the UK version, the streets were chosen carefully and structured accordingly. For example, the orange set are to do with law and order police, magistrates, court, that sort of thing. The yellow set are fun nights out, places to party, places to go clubbing. And the green set are the shopping streets. Although given that the streets in question are Regent Street and Bond Street, it's quite elegant shopping. I wouldn't go there. Uh, And all of the stations were operated by the same company at the time, the LNER, London and North Eastern Railway. Not to be confused with the current train operator on similar routes, also called LNER. Someone who'd come in a time machine from 1930 might get very confused by this. Before they died of some random disease, we're all now immune to, at least. Anyway, as it happens, two of the blue squares, the second cheapest, are in Islington. One is Pentonville Road, which runs east from St Pancras. It does not go to Pentonville Prison, which is to the north, but still just about on the correct side of the Camden border. Islington might not have the main railway stations, but it does have the main prison. Don't think they've got the better of that deal. But Pentonville Road's eastern end is at a crossroads, where we find the other Monopoly Square, and it's one of only two property squares on the board that isn't a road. Ignoring the fact that Marlborough Street technically doesn't exist, as it's actually Great Marlborough Street, the other being Mayfair. Neither of which are in Camden, but Great Marlborough Street does run it close. It's currently in use as a bank, somewhat ironically. This building was the Angel, Islington, originally itself a pub and hotel, meaning it's the only place on the board map that is itself the point of the game. But by the time of the board game, it had become a Lion's Tea Cafe. Had Lion's kept hold of it, it would probably have become something like a wimpy. At least this way it's had a better fate. Possibly. It's believed the couple who were tasked to find locations for the game, Victor and Marge Watson, Victor who worked for Wallington's Games, who were set to release it, took tea in there while they were looking for places on the board, and put it in the game as a result. The Angel Islington still exists, though, at least in spirit. The nearby tube station took its name, and next door to the old building, occupying the stables of the 17th century coach house, is a Weatherspoons pub. This particular pub chain have a habit of calling their pubs names that reflect local history, so it's no surprise to learn this one is called The Angel. Unfortunately, it's not one of their lodges. You can't stay overnight there. I think they're missing a trick there. I did have a drink in it, though, and it does have a blue vibe. Despite, as stated earlier, most of the well-known stations being (coughs) elsewhere, Islington does have a couple of interesting points of note regarding transport. In the very south of the borough is Farringdon, one of the lesser-known but incredibly important stations in London, and once the Crossrail project is completed, it's touted to be one of the busiest stations in the country. However, you may be interested to know it's also one of the oldest underground stations in the world. The world's first underground railway, as we know and understand them today, was a short section of line built from Paddington to Farringdon in 1863, 
by the Metropolitan Railway. The route still operates now, but it's under the guise of the Circle and Hammersmith and City lines of the London Underground. What is now the Metropolitan Line disappears into Metroland at Baker Street. In the west of the borough, at the board with, but for once not actually in, Camden, is the London Canal Museum. It stands on the Regent Canal that connects Limehouse Basin and the River Thames in London's Docklands with the Grand Union Canal that meanders up to Birmingham and the north. This means it's possible to walk to London avoiding pretty much every road, although it would take a while. Not going to lie, I've been tempted. Or at least I was when I lived in Nottinghamshire. From here, not so much. Anyway, the museum looks at the history of the English Canal Network, why they were built, and also what life is like on the canals, both in the past when they were a vital part of industrial and commercial life. In its day, the Grand Union Canal did what the M1 motorway does now, albeit it's less straight than I am. And in the present day, there are narrowboats on site that you can take trips up and down the canal on. If that's not niche enough, one part of the museum is given over to the ice industry. Yes, ice. The museum is built in a former ice warehouse, and ice would have been one of the many things shipped along the canals in the canal barges. To be precise, the ice here was used in the manufacture of ice cream by Carlo Gatti, a Swiss-Italian who around 1850 pretty much invented the concept of takeaway ice cream. Prior to this, ice cream was only really available to you if you had your own ice house. Mr Whippy, and all those ice cream fans that when I lived in Sheffield kept interrupting my podcast recording, owe him a huge debt. From Islington, we go east, into Hackney. And our first port of call is literally on the border. Between Canonbury and Dalston, we find Newington Green Unitarian Church. This is one of the oldest Unitarian churches in the whole of England that's still in regular use, having been originally founded in 1708. Now, Universalist Unitarians have long been at the radical end of Christianity, if loving your fellow human can be considered radical, and were themselves ostracised, even to the point of being executed as heretics in the Middle Ages, for centuries. Following a series of controversial Acts of Parliament in the 1600s, many moved to Newington Green, where their dissenting theories were at least tolerated, and eventually built this church, now a listed building. Unitarianism in general has been at the forefront of liberal movements, from abolishing slavery to anti-fascism. This particular church has been especially notable. One of its early active members was author, philosopher and equal rights activist Mary Wollstonecraft, who one could call the godmother of feminism. And since her time, the church has been at the forefront of campaigns around domestic violence and human trafficking. Whilst they are also notable in the forefront of LGBT rights, in 2008 they took a stance of refusing to conduct any weddings until gay couples were legally allowed to marry. There's a mural of Mary Wollstonecraft on the wall of the church. Her grave is in St Pancras Old Church graveyard, which is, no, you can guess where, though her remains are in Bournemouth. She died at the disappointingly young age of 38 of septicemia, just after giving birth to her second child, also called Mary who later went on to, well if not invent, then certainly be at the forefront of founding the genre of science fiction with the novel Frankenstein. As a borough, I'd never been quite sure where Hackney was, in the sense that I knew it was kind of in a London somewhere vaguely east, but not as far east as Brick Lane. I'd mainly heard of it because of the Hackney Empire Theatre, where stand-up comedians would regularly perform and their shows televised or aired on the radio. Interestingly, what is now the borough of Hackney has a tradition of theatre, in 1576, in Shoreditch, now in the southeast of the borough, there were records of two theatres very close to each other, one called the Curtain Theatre, it stood near Curtain Close, the other, taking naming lessons from the way my mother names her cats, being called 
the theatre. These two, plus one in Southwark at Newington Butts, were probably the earliest permanent theatres, as we know them today, constructed in England. None of them survived that long, only the Curtain Theatre lasted beyond the end of the century. Oddly, the theatre, which at one point was home to a company of actors of which Will Shakespeare was a part, seems to have been the subject of a lawsuit and a bit of a tiff between the landlord, the leader of the company of actors, and the people who originally built it, which ended when, in the middle of the night on the 28th of December 1598, the entire theatre was dismantled and moved pretty much wholesale, firstly to a storage yard, and then, a couple of months later, across the river into Southwark, where it was rebuilt and renamed the Globe. Yes, that Globe Theatre. Most of those involved are buried at St Leonard's Church in Shoreditch, famous for being the Bells of Shoreditch in the children's singing game Oranges and Lemons, the one with the weird last two lines that don't fit the rest of the rhyme and I'm sure were added in just because children are... very strange. Anyway... Having now been to Hackney a couple of times, including spending a couple of nights there late last year when I went down to London for the Traverse Creator Awards, I'm still not entirely sure I have a handle on the place myself anyway. Partly this is because my travel Twitter friend Curious Claire said her and her boyfriend would meet me in Hackney for drinks. Seven minutes before we were due to meet, I found out their definition of Hackney was Hackney Wick, two stations down the overground from my definition of Hackney, which was the centre of town where my hotel was. I was only 17 minutes late. Anyway, so Hackney Central... It's dominated by the Church of St John at Hackney. The current church building was built in 1792 to replace a previous church close by that was deemed too small for the growing population. Little remains of this old church, barring the tower. St Augustine's Tower was originally the bell tower of the old church and preserved after that church's demolition because the new church didn't yet have one. Which, you know, is fair enough. It was later designated a Grade 1 listed building so they couldn't demolish it now even if they wanted to. Around the tower is the old church's graveyard, which is the final resting place of, amongst others, Francis Beaufort. Although now largely deprecated, his claim to fame is creating the wind speed scale bearing his name that defined breezes, gales, hurricanes, etc., and which is still used in many press releases and, of course, Radio 4 shipping forecast. The gardens around both the church and the tower are landscaped with a number of larger family graves, as well as a memorial to the Czech town of Ledici, razed to the ground in World War II. Another graveyard in Hackney, albeit much bigger, is Abney Park Cemetery. And this is one of the Magnificent Seven cemeteries I alluded to in my first podcast on London, where I talked about Nunhead Cemetery in Southwark. These were seven large areas which were then on the outer edges of London that were expressly designated as large burial grounds. This was to prevent what you might call overcrowding in the small local churchyards that were dotted around London. The idea seems to have come from Paris's Père Lachaise Cemetery, although it's interesting to note that Paris's own solution to the same problem of too many deaths, not enough space, was to utilise old mine shafts, the Paris catacombs, rather than create out-of-town graveyards. Apart from Abney Park and Nunhead, the other five lie in what are now inner London boroughs. Kensington has two, Tower Hamlets and Lambeth have one each. The last is Highgate, which lies on the borders of Islington, Haringey, and of course, where else, Camden. Abney Park itself is 12.5 hectares in size and holds around 200,000 people. It's interesting as from the very start it was non-denominational, the first such designated in Europe, I believe, so pretty much anyone could be buried in it. Indeed, it proved a popular resting place for many non-conformist Christians, especially Methodists, and it's here that the founders of the Salvation Army are buried, not just William and Catherine Booth themselves, but many of their early brethren. However, 
People as varied as missionaries, anti-slavery activists, radical publishers, and of all people, William Colcraft, the last public executioner in the UK. The layout of the cemetery is such that there are no dividing lines between groups of people. Everybody is deemed as being equal in death. It appears that the cemetery can still be used for new burials, but generally isn't, aside from hyperlocal requests. What's more emphasised now is the ambient nature of the place. While designed as a cemetery, it was created with nature in mind. Indeed, it was the first combined arboretum and cemetery in Europe, complete with trees and plants from all around the world, and it still very much has that natural feel. This has been especially true since the late 1970s, when burials more or less ceased and nature took even more <clears throat> root than it had been. If you like your nature a little less morbid, on the eastern side of Hackney is the River Lee. This is a river that rises near Luton and flows down to the Thames near Bow. For much of its London length, it is canalised to make navigation more consistent and possible along its length for the promotion of trade and, these days, pleasure navigation. The landscape here is, well, in the southeast corner of Hackney, close to Hackney Wick, is an area known as Hackney Marshes. It lies between the river and the navigation canal. The name might bring to mind some kind of wild, damp, flat country. And indeed, one of those is still true. Much of the marsh was drained from medieval times, and it's now mostly open common land, over 130 hectares of it. Both the river and the canal have paths along, or at least close by them, and both are lined with trees, making it a pleasant walk. However, Hackney marshes themselves are noted specifically for one pastime above all others. It is the biggest site for amateur and Sunday league football. Soccer to the Americans. That's almost a hundred pitches laid out, which, even though they're right next to each other, gives you some idea of the scale of the place. Many famous London-based footballers started or developed their careers here, including John Terry, David Beckham and Bobby Moore. Oddly, there also seems to be an Australian rules football pitch marked out too. I mean, it could be a cricket pitch, but it has goalposts on it, so that's a bit of a giveaway. There's also a park run here. I imagine it'd be a great one for a PB. On the upper edge of Hackney Marshes is a small nature reserve called the Middlesex Filter Beds. Back in Hounslow, I mentioned about filter beds and reservoirs. The nature reserve here is on the site of, and contains some ruins of, another set of filter beds, and the River Lee was a vital way of providing fresh water for this part of London. Filter beds essentially work by channelling water out of the river, running it through large pits of gravel or sand which have the effect of filtering all the impurities out, and then what's left over is fresh water which can be stored in reservoirs until needed and then pumped away, or pumped back into the river further downstream. Some of the filter beds can be quite huge and deep, at least a couple of metres. At Middlesex filter beds there were six beds in all which at their peak handled over 40 million gallons of water per day. The beds can still be seen, mostly overgrown, but the shape and sense of them are still there, as are remains of some of the infrastructure used to control them. There are still reservoirs in the area that perform the same function, but on a much grander scale. Indeed, they line the Lee Valley pretty much all the way to the northern edge of Enfield Borough. They begin just north of here, slightly beyond Walthamstow Marshes, where the Lee marks the boundary between Hackney and the next borough along, Waltham Forest. The Walthamstow wetlands form part of the Lee Valley Country Park, which, taken as a whole, cover an area several miles long and up to a mile wide. It is a site of special scientific interest, and along the northwestern edge of the borough of Waltham Forest, it takes the form of several reservoirs which you can walk amongst. 
do a bit of bird watching, and visit a couple of the interesting historical locations on site, including an old copper mill and an engine house. Further south, towards the Hackney Marshes, are the Walthamstow Marshes, flat grassy land to the east of the River Lee, bisected by two railway lines and a footpath that marks one of the major water pipelines heading into London. It's a nice area to wander through. You don't feel you're too close to major civilization until a train goes past. The centre of Waltham Forest is Walthamstow. This is notable for someone of my vintage for its postcode. E. East. 17. Given when I'm recording releasing this podcast, I'd like it on record that one of the hills I am prepared to die on is that Stay Another Day by East 17 is not a Christmas song. It does not mention Christmas, nothing related to snow, no festive greetings, New Year's wishes, nor births of messiahs. But it's got bells on, so do Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys and Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega. But it was released at Christmas, so was the Beatles' Hello Goodbye and Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. Muppets. Anyway, I'd always imagined Walthamstow as a lively but very working class area. It's famous for its old, iconic Greyhound Stadium, used in publicity by not only the eponymous boy band, but also Indie Darling's Blair on their Park Life album. And to be honest, it didn't disappoint. Well, I mean, the Greyhound Stadium itself isn't there anymore, but you know what I mean. Within ten minutes of arriving in the town centre, I'd bought an absolutely fantastic spinach-stroke feta bread from a Jewish bakery, browsed vibrant material at an Indian starry stall on Walthamstow Market, at around a mile long, it's one of the largest street markets in Europe, and walked past the stereotypical Cockney geezer on his mobile phone talking about his need to be somewhere else very quickly to seal a deal. I've always found it hard to love London, because I've always found it too expensive, too crowded and too unfriendly, but I think, you know, I could probably love to learn somewhere like Walthamstow. It feels like a more inclusive and genuine version of the area I grew up in. There's even a small local museum in the centre, the Vestry House Museum, that looks at the history of the whole borough and how life in it has changed. Hyperlocal museums are the biz, because they show how real people lived in real places. They feel more real, as well as showing a side of history that rarely gets mentioned at a larger level. Everywhere is interesting, partly because everyone is interesting. And without museums like that, we don't know how people lived. Another thing I noticed about Walthamstow that fits with the vibe is the preponderance of street art. Even just a walk along the very western edge, near the reservoirs, revealed several huge murals on the sides of buildings, full walls in height. Waltham Forest is a place for artists and creatives. This extends even to officially sanctioned street art. For example, at Leightonstone Tube Station there are several mosaics on the wall commemorating the life and works of Alfred Hitchcock, who was born in the area. Though he didn't stay for very long. According to Google Street View, where his house stood is now a petrol station and shop, there is a blue plaque on the wall. This artistic vibe seems to have been the case for a while. On the north side of Walthamstow Town Centre is a museum dedicated to William Morris, who I mentioned in my first London episode as having briefly lived in a country house in Bexleyborough. William Morris himself appeals a little to me as the kind of man I could have been. He died aged 62, the doctor allegedly quipping his course of death being that he was William Morris, that he never sat still, was always busy, that sort of thing. His main career was in, of all things, interior design, his company, Morris & Co., designed furniture, carpets and wallpaper that, well, quite chintz by modern standards, are still popular even today. But he was also a poet and a writer, a campaigner for the preservation of historic buildings, and a firebrand socialist orator who was once arrested during a socialist protest. That the charge was dismissed, he said, proved the exact point that the rich were treated differently to the poor. 
He tended to prefer working with objects rather than people and seems to have had a bit of a random temperament. Sounds a bit familiar. One quote associated with him is, have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. And indeed it's written on a wall close to his museum. I'm not saying he was the Marie Kondo of his time, nor am I saying I take his belief as my own. But when I think about my minimalist tendencies, it's certainly something I can relate to. The museum itself is a small two-storey building in a large parkland where he lived during his teenage years. It's quite an in-depth museum, however, complete with interactive exhibits and examples of original tapestries, as well as giving a good overview of his life. I'm not sure we share similar tastes, though, to be fair. I'm going to call it grandmother chic. That much flower representation in those colours would probably do my eyes in after a while. North of Walthamstow is Chingford. What might be unexpected about an area that just screams sitcom suburbia is a quiet corner of contemplation. The old church at Chingford has one of the largest and most spectacular graveyards I've been to in the UK. I guess nothing says I love and remember like a gravestone. See, most British churchyards are filled with row upon row of graves with similar dedications, the only difference being newer graves tend to be shiny marble rather than dull grey granite. But here, it feels more reminiscent of graveyards in Ukraine, in Timor-Leste, in Chile than here in the UK. Each gravestone seems to have a personality, a unique style, and of course the surrounding decor says more about love than any dedication to the living. Some graves even have benches sat in front of them, so the ones left behind can sit and think about the loved ones that they've lost. Maybe this is the modern way of remembrance in the UK. Maybe I'm just used to going around medieval churchyards with inscriptions barely visible, worn down by centuries of bad weather and forgotten about by distant descendants. The churchyard is huge. It's about the size of 140 rugby pitches, or approximately one-third the size of the entire city of London area. It's divided into numbered sections, apparently. The signage is quite limited. This is a shame, as I means I never found the most famous graves there, those of legendary East London gangsters of the Cray Twins. However, it was a lovely way to spend the best part of an hour, just wandering around the rows, lost in quiet contemplation. South of Waltham Forest is the borough of Newham, a borough it always takes me a while to remember exists, despite having overnighted in it once. It's not a terribly large borough, and by far its most famous and identifiable spot is also one of its newest. It is the home of the London Stadium and Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. This is a landscaped area mostly made up of ex-industrial land, though some of it was built on part of Hackney Marshes, much of the irk of many in the local communities. It's obviously, as the name implies, where the 2012 London Olympics were based, and the stadium is now used by the local football team West Ham United, in a relatively rare example of a club moving to a large new stadium, but still remaining not just within the borough, but in fact within walking distance of many of its supporters. The distance between here and their old stadium, the Berlin Ground in Upton Park, is five kilometres. There isn't a park run here, though. Completing the link from the boroughs to the north, Newham is where the River Lee joins the Thames. Well, I mean, it marks the border with Tower Hamlets to the west, so it's right on the edge. Between the Olympic Park and the river's mouth lies Three Mills Island. Crossed by cycle pathways and containing a small parkland, this is the site of old mills powered by tidal flow along the River Lee. There have been mills documented here for over a thousand years, making these the oldest recorded tidal mills, though earlier ones are believed to have existed both in Ireland and indeed in the city of London itself. The buildings that exist on site now date from either side of the turn of the 19th century and consist of the house mill, clock mill and miller's house. I am fully aware that's only two mills. There used to be eight, there haven't been three since the late 1500s, but this is England, we don't like change and the name stuck. 
The mills stopped operating just after World War II and are now used for a variety of purposes, including a small museum, a TV production studios and an educational college. Parts of Newham and Tower Hamlets are quite similar demographically. In a sense, Newham is the borough where the melting pot of inner East London fades into standard suburbia. According to the 2011 census, only 8.4% of residents of Newham expressed they had no religion, the lowest in the UK excluding Northern Ireland. Unsurprisingly, data on religion in Northern Ireland is a specialist area with quite different census questions. For completeness, the highest authority with this characteristic, at 46.3% of the surveyed population, was Blano Gwent in Wales, an area I could potentially have moved to had I not ended up in Glasgow. The highest in London was Lambeth at 393 With regard to specific religions, at 37%, Newham had the second highest percentage of population in London who were Muslim, second only to neighbouring Tower Hamlets at 45 Both hold 10.6% of London's entire Islamic population. If I calculate correctly, estimates for 2018 put the Islamic population as the highest religious grouping at around 42%. In related stats, Newham has the lowest percentage of white British residents of all London boroughs, 167 in 2011. Indeed, the local council wards around Green Street, one of the main streets in the centre of the borough that links Forest Gates to Upton Park, have a white British population of 4.8%, the third lowest behind two in Southall in Ealing. Disappointingly, none of the railway stations have dual-language signage in Urdu. And yes, for the football fans listening, that Upton Park, that Green Street. West Ham United Football Club have had a, a reputation in the past for hooliganism and racism. For reasons we won't go into right now, the film Green Street, about this sort of thing, and rather oddly starring Elijah Wood, of all people, is one of the few films I've seen more than once. And they literally fight with nearby Millwall fans for the white working-class support. So that their old football stadium was in such a non-white area is kind of... interesting. I realise so far I've not painted much of a picture of Newham. It is, however, a bit like Luton, a fairly easy borough to get to and from, as it's the location of the closest airport to the centre of London, London City Airport. It's not a very big airport. It's in the high teens in terms of passenger use for UK airports, fighting position with regional airports like Liverpool and East Midlands, and its available destinations aren't terribly large. Due to its location in regenerated Dockland and surrounded by heavy residential and commercial areas, and the River Thames, it's only accessible by smaller planes, and it's not an easy place to expand. Indeed, there's a body of opinion that the airport should be abolished and land used more usefully for housing and businesses. I've never flown into or out of it, so I can't comment. Apparently, there are direct flights from Glasgow, though, which is useful if you ever wanted to go to London with a small bag. Newham is also the site of Stratford International Railway Station, because apparently Kent is an international destination now. It lies on the Eurostar route, but no international trains stop here, as it's seven minutes from St Pancras, so it felt like there wasn't a lot of point. The only trains using the station are high-speed trains to exciting places like Ebbsfleet and Ashford, from where you can pick up Eurostar. It was supposed to be used for international trains heading north to equally exciting places like Birmingham and Leeds, but this is an ongoing argument that's beyond the scope of this pod. Though I do mention it in passing in episode 48 when I rant about the UK Rail Service. And close to Stratford, just north of West Ham, is another railway station. Abbey Road DLR, Docklands Light Railway. Abbey Road? London? <laughs> well, not only is it not that Abbey Road, there is amusing signage on the platform and surrounds that refers to it. For example, there's a sign on the platform that gives directions to that Abbey Road in northwest London, the one with the famous zebra crossing, with no less than eight beetle puns on it. Who says town planners and rail engineers don't have a sense of humour? 
I guess they could have avoided it all had they called it Abbey Gardens or Baker's Row, the other road that goes here, but, you know. As an aside, the name Abbey Road is significant, but it is in a different way. Although there's nothing there now, Abbey Road DLR station and the area around the nearby Baker's Row are pretty much on the site of an old Cistercian Abbey, called the Abbey of St Mary's Stratford Langthorne. It was built in the late 12th century and became one of the largest in England until its demise under Henry VIII. A representation of the Abbey is pictured on the crest of Newhamborough Council. Specifically, the Abbey Road stationery was the site of the gatehouse of the Abbey. This is now the location of a community garden created by the Somewhere Autistic Collective. The website of the garden says they provide an open access harvest garden in the East London borough of Newham where anyone is welcome to participate in the communal growing of flowers, fruit and vegetables. Unlike the traditional allotment system, no one has their own patch and everyone gardens together at regular gardening sessions led by an experienced gardener. The abbey itself covered a large area north and west on a site that's now mostly a huge rail depot. Much less apt. I'm aware I've not talked a lot about unexpected and lesser known things in Newham much, as compared with the other boroughs. This is largely because I didn't find a lot, and it's not an area I know well. However, compared with the borough that lies directly northeast, I could probably go on mastermind with what I know about Newham. As you know by now, London is made up of 32 boroughs and the city. Before I started work on these podcasts, it would have been an interesting question to ask how many of them I could name in one minute. It's hard to think about this in hindsight, but I reckon I could probably have listed 26, 27 off the bat. Of the others, Bexley, well I always forget what it's actually called other than it begins with a B. One of Merton or Wandsworth would escape my initial thoughts as for some reason in my head I was thinking them as being the same place. Ealing I know but always forget that it's a borough. I either think it's called Acton or assume that Hounslow and Hammersmith are bigger than they are. And after 59 seconds, I'd remember where Newham is, and that it's west of, and therefore not part of, Barking. 31 out of 32 isn't bad. But what on earth is that elusive 32nd borough? Redbridge? Never heard of it. Oh, Ilford. Isn't that still in Essex, though? Isn't it near Romford? Was that in Essex? Oh no, Romford's in Havering. So, where? My only real experience with the name Redbridge was in a short-lived football team in the early 90s, Redbridge Forest, who merged with Dagenham Town to form Dagenham and Redbridge, which, to be honest, sometimes I think is a London borough itself, one that also includes Barking, when I don't equally think of Barking as having annexed Newham, as previously discussed. East London is a blank space to me. However, I have found a way to picture Redbridge, It's basically that bit on the London tube map where the central line is depicted as turning northwards and then forming a loop to Hainault. It's up there somewhere. One of the stations on that loop line is Roding Valley, which lies right on the border between Redbridge and Essex. It's notable in rail circles for being usually the least used tube station on the whole London Underground network, with 450,000 passengers in 2019 and 190,000 in 2020 which is still a reasonable amount for a suburban station, but London is big. I say least used. That is if you don't count Kensington Olympia, which is only open at weekends and special occasions. Or apparently, 2020, Heathrow Terminal 4 tube stop, because it was closed due to Covid. In fact, of all the regular stations on the network, in normal times, all three on the north side of the Hainault Loop, Chigwell and Grange Hill being the other two, are the lowest used on the network. Partly because few people live up here, partly because I guess those that do don't want to go into central London, 
but also partly because most of the data to get anywhere outside the north part of the loop, you've got to change trains. And no, not that Grange Hill either. Though the long-running TV series was set in North London, it was filmed more in the Brent Barnet areas than anywhere else. Disappointing, I know. The majority of sites in Redbridge that might appeal to the tourists seem to be in the realm of parks and outdoor spaces, which I guess is in keeping with many of the other boroughs around London, to be honest. It's possibly going to be a surprise to Londoners in general just how much green space there is in the suburbs. Redbridge has Hainault Forest Country Park and the tail end of Epping Forest. These are all that remain of a much larger forest, or Royal Country Park, but yes, there were trees in it, that covered this side of Essex. The whole thing was called Waltham Forest, and yes, the neighbouring borough to the west is named after it. Hainault Country Park covers about 1.3 square kilometres, a far cry from Hainault Forest's 12 square kilometres back in the mid-16th century. Anyway, it's now a protected open space with footpaths and a lake. And just southwest here is Philip Waters Country Park, which is basically a big lake and a golf course. Although much smaller than Barnet's Welsh Harp Reservoir, this is equally a place to take to the water. They describe themselves as the only place for sailing lessons in the Redbridge area, which, I mean... But it's certainly it's marketed as being a water, sport, paradise. On site is also a designated rock climbing area and an inflatable water park, one of those kinds of things most famously seen in the UK on the TV programme Total Wipeout, which, today, I learned was filmed in Argentina. I kind of always assumed it was filmed from some dodgy English seaside resort, like it's a knockout from my youth, a programme we no longer talk about for <clears throat> reasons. It'd have been more fun had it been filmed in Redbridge. Between the two, by the way, and in keeping with this, we're just smaller version of Barnet, really, vibe, are a couple of large related cemeteries. They are both parts of the Gardens of Peace and make up apparently the largest dedicated Islamic cemetery in the UK. Indeed, a third site across the Havering border in Romford is scheduled to open later in the year because the sites in Redbridge are getting close to capacity. Research hasn't brought up exactly what the capacity is, although a figure of 10,000 graves has been bounded around the, in the internet. This might be just for the original site on Elmbridge Road, though, which is now only used for the interment of children. And just like other religious burial sites, you're allowed to visit and wander as long as you're respectful. This includes no food or drink, no loud voices, no taking photos or videos, no leaving of goods on the graves, and their website has a whole section on what to do with unwanted or donated Islamic literature, and, uniquely, they specifically point out that it is forbidden to feed the geese. The southwest of the borough has more open spaces to enjoy. Redbridge definitely feels like the borough to go to to get your one hour outside. Here we find Wanstead Flats and Park. The flats are similar to those found along the River Lee around Hackney and Walthamstow, flat areas of gorse and shrubland with the occasional watercourse and lake. And again, similar to Hackney in particular, some of the area has been designated for sport, football pitches and, of course, the obligatory park run. Wanstead Park is a great two-star listed historic park and gardens. It used to be the deer park of the old Wanstead Hall and Manor, which later became Wanstead House. The original Wanstead Hall was built sometime in the 15th century and was for a time owned by the monarchy. It was replaced in the early 1700s by Wanstead House, a hugely impressive neo-Palladian edifice, similar to how somewhere like Woburn Abbey looks, and in fact parts of Buckingham Palace, with a long rectangular design, square windows, columns, and two external staircases zigzagging up to the large entrance. It would have been a pretty awesome building to still have, except that it was demolished not much more than 100 years after it was built due to the then-owner, William Pole-Tilney-Long-Wellesley, 
the fourth Earl of Mornington and nephew to Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, being in rather a lot of debt, at one point fleeing to Belgium to avoid arrest. His death notice in the Morning Chronicle newspaper was quite damning. A spendthrift, a profligate and a gambler in his youth, he became debauched in his manhood, redeemed by no single virtue, adorned by no single grace, his life gone out even without a flicker of repentance. Life goes there, methinks. Due to a technicality in the deeds of the house, it wasn't possible to sell it to recoup the debts. All that could be done was to sell off the fixtures and fittings, then get rid of it. Despite all this, the park has been mostly kept as if it were the gardens of a manor house, rather than becoming a natural park. It has a more formal layout than you might expect from a park, with a couple of lakes, a temple, a grotto, and, for some reason, an amphitheatre. It may hold something else, much older. It's believed the park stands on the site of a Roman villa. A mosaic was found on site in 1715. Some foundations believed to date from the Roman period were recorded, and even some coins and burial remains were noted. Of course, in the intervening years, details have been lost, so no one quite knows exactly where it was. There's been a limited amount of archaeological research since, most recently in the early 2000s, but while findings have been consistent with a Roman building, no further action has been taken to discover how big or what sort of building it was that lies there. Wanstead Flats and Park have been cited as being the inspiration behind the song Ichiku Park by 60s psych rock band The Small Faces, the name coming from either stinging nestles or wasps. However, another park in the borough, and another with grade 2 listed status, has also been suggested as its inspiration. This is Valentine's Park in Ilford, voted as one of the 10 best parks in the UK in a 2019 poll by Keep Britain Tidy. It was created, if that's the right term, in 1899 when the then municipal borough, Ilford, bought up some land from the old Cranbrook estate to ensure the town retained some green space in the onset of huge residential expansion. The park contains a boating lake, walled gardens, a tennis court, a county standard cricket ground, because cricket apparently doesn't require huge stadiums, and of course is host of the obligatory Saturday park run. There's also an old manor house, Valentine's Mansion, built at the end of the 17th century and now owned by Redbridge Council, home to a museum that acts as a kind of time capsule, showing what the house would have looked like during the Georgian and Regency periods. You can also get married there, for as little as £280, including registrar fees, though only if you have six guests. Larger rooms with up to 50 guests cost up to twice as much. I'm not sure I know six people I could invite to my wedding who would actually be able to come. Such is the problem of having mostly virtual friends. It also requires someone to marry, which, let's face it, is unlikely to happen this side of the heat death of the universe. South of Redbridge is one of the few boroughs made up of two town names. It was originally created, along with all of the other boroughs, in 1965, with the name Barking Borough, the and Dagenham being added in 1980, for reasons as yet unclear to me. It's... Well, you might recall from my first London episode, comedian Linda Smith saying about Erith in Bexley Borough that it wasn't twinned with anywhere, but it had a suicide pact with Dagenham. In addition, poet Billy Bragg wrote a song about the main road through the area called A13 Trunk Road to the Sea, one of the lyrics being, bypass Barking and straight through Dagenham. I can kind of see what they both meant. It's mostly identical boring suburbia. One of the reasons for this is a large part of Dagenham is made up of the Beckentree estate. This is often cited as the largest public housing estate in the world. 
It was built in the interwar period to serve the rapidly expanding London population, and by 1937, just under 27,000 houses had been built, containing a population of just over 115,000. I'm not saying you should visit it, unless walking around endless streets filled with suburban semi-detached and terraced townhouses appeals to you from an architectural standpoint. It doesn't to me, and I've often lived in houses that look exactly like that. It does, however, give a feel of what the borough of Barking and Dagenham feels like as a whole, especially given that around 45% of the entire borough's population live in it. Many of them, probably at some point, ended up working at the huge Ford motor plant on the banks of the Thames. At one point it was such a notable employer it's pretty much the only thing people elsewhere in the country know about Dagenham. Wikipedia tells me that since opening in 1931 it's produced nearly 11 million cars and 40 million engines and at its height employed 40,000 people. It now employs less than 2,000. Mainly, they all build diesel engines. <laughs> For some older architecture, Barking Town Centre has the ruins of the old Barking Abbey, set in a reasonable town green square called, unsurprisingly, Abbey Green. Built in the 7th century, in its day it was one of the most important nunneries in the country, and in fact it had a reputation for being one of the most significant places for women's education in the early Middle Ages. It closed, like St Mary's at Stratford Langthorne in Newham, when Henry VIII decided he was bigger than God. So, not much actually remains of the abbey itself, though its walls are laid out on the grass of the green. Virtually the only part still standing today is the curfew tower, which features on the borough crest, again just like St Mary's does for Newham. What does stand, though, is the neighbouring St Margaret's Church, itself dating from the 12th century, so for a few centuries the two ran in parallel. It's a typical stone-built building that wouldn't look too much out of place in an English country village, which is exactly what Barking isn't. As an aside, Dagenham Village has a conservation area where it would suit, and it does have a church, but apart from that and a large pub, it's not terribly big, or indeed noticeable. It used to be bigger. Town planners didn't approve. The borough has a couple of small museums. One is Valance House, once a large manor house and the only one of the several in the area that still exists. There's been a house on the site from as early as 1280 and was extended down the ages. It served for a while as the head office of Dagenham Urban District Council in the early 20th century. These days it serves to show the history of the area and its people in exciting galleries according to its website. Yep, it's another one of those hyper-local interest museums that every area needs. It's also home to the Archives and Local Studies Centre, which, fake sense, in addition, the museum seems to be noted too for its portrait gallery of many members of the local influential Fanshawe family, who owned nearby Parslow's Manor, which was pulled down in 1925 and replaced with an eponymous area of parkland, without a parkrun. The Valence House is set in a small garden area. Another old manor house set in small gardens that's now a museum is in Upney, part of Barking. This is Eastbury Manor House, formerly known as Eastbury Hall. Built in the late 16th century, it was commissioned by a member of the gentry out of brick and partly built with bits nicked from nearby Barking Abbey. These days it tells the story of the house, the people who lived here and the times they lived in. Or would do if it was open. It's currently closed for admin reasons related to Covid. The gardens have secret bee bowls apparently, these being a way to keep bees in the days before beehives were a thing. Interestingly, it was the first property taken on by the National Trust within London. For something more modern and artistic, there's a couple of things around the borough that are worth standing in front of and going, OK then. Just north of Barking Railway Station is a roundabout with a weird sculpture in the middle. Looking closer, you can determine it's a representation of a couple of fishing nets containing fish. 
It was designed by Lorraine Leeson. It's called The Catch, and it's a throwback to when Barking was noted for its fishing industry. Just south of the station, on the way to Barking Abbey, is the town square. This area contains two very different things that act as a weird juxtaposition. One is an odd modern building that looks like someone has tried to build with Lego, but with no instructions or vision. Lots of windows, lots of flat white panels, lots of yellow panels, some of both of which stick out from towers as if a giant could use them as stepping stones. Nearby is the remains of an old stone wall. Looks for all the world like it belongs to a ruined church or official building. There's a faded bronze crest-type statue at the top of one corner. There are alcoves where windows once stood that contain small representations of animals, and at the top, on the remains of the eaves, is what looks like a ram. The wall dates from, checks notes, 2007, and was designed by the local artist collective called Muff. M-U-F, nothing rude. They say it's designed to be, quote, a fragment of an imaginary lost part of barking, unquote. More modern art can be found in the south of the borough, in a somewhat unlikely place. The aforementioned A13 is a fast, somewhat soulless dual carriageway separating the borough from the River Thames. However, at the start of the 21st century, the road was turned from Drab Highway into one of London's largest outdoor art installations. For about 3.3 kilometres, the road, mainly the junctions and the subways, have been turned into the A13 artscape, with interesting lighting schemes, better landscape surrounds, striking sculptures at the intersections, and other things to make the road less, well, boring. One of the artists involved in its creation, Tom De Power, gave a typically artist-centred description, saying it was designed as, quote, a journey through interlinking imaginative landscape on a grand scale, with ideas, themes and connections set up to fire your curiosity and make a whole new road experience, unquote. Or something. Because much of it is light-specific, it looks better at night than it does on Google Maps. A more traditional landscape can be found in the east of the borough, Separating it from neighbouring Havering is the River Rom, additionally known downstream as the Beam River, and previously called the River Mark Ditch, reflecting its boundary status between Dagenham and Hornchurch, which in a sense it still is. It was renamed the Rom because of the town of Romford, which means the Wide Ford, not the other way around. See also Cambridge for a similar change. Anyway, the river passes along the edge of several country parks and nature reserve, including Eastbrook End Country Park, the Chase Nature Reserve, and a Beam Valley Country Park. The whole area covers just less than 300 hectares. It's quite a modern creation. It had been wasteland and derelict ex-industrial land until the mid-1990s, mainly gravel pits, but was landscaped and covered with small trees, some of which are quite unusual due to the area's dry acidic soils. It's a very popular area for birds and therefore birdwatching, but there's also evidence of human habitation stretching back to the Roman age. Just before we leave this place, a couple of other small points of interest. Firstly, Barking was the site of the worst ever shipping disaster in territorial waters in the UK. This was in September 1878, when the SS Princess Alice sank with a loss of about 600 deaths. It was returning to London from a coastal trip with 800 passengers, when, just off the coast, at Barking, it collided with a cargo ship carrying coal, broke in two, and pretty much sank there and then. You can infer the vast majority of people on board didn't survive. The fallout was an improvement in the way the river was policed and in the way events with mass deaths were handled. There's a mural commemorating the event on River Road, a fairly ugly road with industrial and warehouse-type complexes, but the mural itself is close to the entrance to Barking Creek Park, a small area of grassland on the edge of the River Thames and one which provides interesting views over the mudbanks, the Barking Creek flood barrier, and over to the boroughs of Greenwich and Bexley on the far side of the Thames. The other concerns music. 
I've mentioned other boroughs with iconic music venues, and this one is no different. Between Barking and Dagenham stands the Roundhouse Public House. It's got a very apt name, having been built in the mid-1930s on a road junction, and the walls of the pub curve around in line with the junction rather than being sharply square. It's got a very Art Deco type feel, with otherwise plain cream walls and a small tower. However, it was in the 1960s and 1970s, obviously, when the pub came to the fore as a notable music hotspot. Here, though, the genre of music in question was rock and associated subgenres. Bands such as Deep Purple, T-Rex, Status Quo and Queen performed here, as did Led Zeppelin, presumably when Chislehurst Caves were unavailable. The pub is still used as a venue today, although it's diversified from rock music and now plays host also to, amongst other things, boxing shows and comedy nights. And, hooping back to the start of my commentary on this borough, the road behind it used to be the car park, but it's now a small housing association street named after local poet and musician Billy Bragg. There's very definitely a strong musical heritage in the outer boroughs of London, from Croydon's dubstep to Enfield's blues to here. And while I'm only going to mention it in passing, we can continue the theme in the last borough on the list, with a different genre entirely. As they say... Mega, mega white thing, mega, mega white thing So many things to see and do in the tube hole True blood going back to... Now, if we're going to be absolutely picky and semantic about this, the tube, the London Underground, doesn't actually go to Romford. The end of the district line is in the London Borough of Havering, yes, but it goes to the southern side, to Upminster. But I'm guessing that as the Electronic Dance Act Underworld, the ones responsible for the track Born Slippy.nuxx, which was an inescapable tune in my early 20s, come from Romford, it was just a bit of poetic license. And as the lyrics are alleged to have been written as a testament to what happens when you go out on the lash in London, I guess you should be grateful that you even end up in Havering and not, say, Hillingdon, both large boroughs that begin with an H on the edge of London. No one will notice the difference. Anyway... Havering is the most easterly of the London boroughs. Indeed, only four boroughs have any land at all east of its westernmost point in Hainault Forest. Redbridge, Barking and Dagenham, Bexley and Bromley. And Redbridge's is only very marginal. It's also the most, how shall we say this, Jess from Jess Travels will put this more succinctly in a moment, but, for example, of all the London boroughs, Havering has the highest proportion of residents born in the UK, at about 90%, and stats on the Hidden London website state that the Upminster Ward specifically is over 90% white British, one of the highest, although still lower than places like Kirkby and Ashfield in Nottinghamshire, where I used to live, and 75% of people in the ward profess to being some flavour of Christian, which is the highest anywhere in London. I don't know if I've ever been to Havering. Sometime in the early 2000s, I remember going with my old social group to a house party somewhere down there, and I'm sure we got off the M25 at Junction 28. However, I don't recall much about the specific details. The homemade punch packed quite, shall we say, a bit of a punch. I know this because I saw it being made. I still drank it. One person who knows more about Havering than me is Jess from Jess Travels. Because she lives there. Hello, I'm Jess and since 2003 I've lived in the London borough of Havering. Havering is in East London. Uh, it has a population of about 260,000. Um, and it's mostly suburban. Uh, it's also predominantly white and conservative. I used to live in the London borough of Redbridge, which is one of the neighbouring boroughs, and that was much more diverse. 
That's not to say that Romford and Havering doesn't have some diversity. Uh, Romford especially, which is the main town, um, has a good mixture of, of different cultures. But um, yeah, not the same as, as its two neighbouring boroughs, uh, Barking and Dagenham and Redbridge. So Romford is a historic market town. The market was established in 1247, so it's very old. And it's not one of these little quaint cutesy markets that you might get in a in a cute country village it's um, much more brash in your face people shouting at you to buy their apples and pears type of market so you know it's worth visiting I think if you're in the area Romford is also famous for its nightlife although that's something I enjoyed when I was a teenager and not so much now but um, it is something that people travel to Romford for is its nightclubs and bars and there's quite a few pubs as well um there's some, there's a couple of nice pubs but the clubs are not places that I really hang out anymore but it might be you know something some people enjoy um I'd say my favorite place in Havering um is Bedford's Park um Havering in general has quite a lot of green spaces I'm actually kind of on the edge of Havering and Romford, so it feels much more like a city here, whereas majority of Havering is actually quite green um, and, and quite suburban. Bedford's Park is definitely the best park, in my opinion. Um, it's a nature reserve and there's wild deer um, and it's just very pretty and you can get some really great views of London. So there's a, there's a lookout point and you can see the Shard and Canary Wharf Um all the way into central London, basically. So that's pretty cool. Um, another thing I'm going to mention that's a bit more niche, um, but it is one of my favourite things, actually. There is a place called um, Romford Garden Suburb. And this is actually in Gidea Park, which is not far from Romford. And this is um, a housing development that started in about 1910. Um, and about a hundred different architects worked on the homes, and basically each home is different. They're all really lovely houses. Um, each one is different, and there was um, like a competition at the time um, for like best architecture, best um, detached house, things like that. Um, there's a lot more to it, uh, which I won't go into now. But if you Google Romford Garden Suburb, you can find out about this housing development. At the time, the homes were sold above asking price um, for about £250 to £500, which was obviously a lot more than the normal asking price at the time, but seems uh, measly today. A lot of these homes will be worth near a million, if not more. So because I'm quite nosy and like looking at people's houses, um, this is perfect for me. I like going on walks around that area. Um, every time I go on a little walk that way, I spot a new house that I hadn't quite noticed before or a new detail on a house so it's great if you like um if you're interested in architecture and being nosy at people's homes <laughs> uh, and there's a nearby park called Rafels Park that is also um, a nice park in Havering so if you want to see that you need to go to Gidea Park and um, if you google the Romford Garden suburb all of these homes are called exhibition homes even though people do live in them now and um, there's a good Wikipedia entry that tells you some of the names of the streets that have um, some of these homes on and, and particular houses that won prizes some of them are like grade two listed buildings now so yeah that's my kind of niche havering thing to see 
and I hope that it's given you a few ideas of things to do here. It's not the best borough in, in London, I'm sure. I'm sure there's better ones. I'm not um, going to big it up too much, but there are interesting things for sure. Okay, so Jess is taking you around the parks and the mm, houses. What else can we find? Well, there's a couple of interesting bits of street art. At Raynham, on the shore of the River Thames, is an interesting statue, about four and a half metres tall and made of a framework of steel. It's in the form of someone wearing a full diving suit. It's even called the Diver Regeneration. And at high tide, it gets partially, or even completely, depending on the tide, submerged. It's by a local sculptor, John Kaufman, and was created and directed in 2000. It represents working men, especially those in difficult environments. He chose a diver to honour his grandfather, who in the early 20th century had worked at the London docks as a diver and engineer. Harold Wood has two minor artworks of intrigue, and yes, that's a suburb name, not a bloke. In the centre of town, just on the other side of Hildean Avenue from the main shops, is a small mural that encourages recycling. It's eight metres long by around two and a half metres high, made from 70% recycled or resalvaged materials, and was designed in 2003 by local collective Living Space Arts. It's here because at the time, the area was reported to have the lowest recycling rate in London. It's quite a stark mosaic, featuring on one side an industrial landscape, a radioactivity symbol, and representations of smoke and pollution, while on the other, a much greener and more natural landscape, complete with a large fern, clear skies, fish, and a starry night. Continuing the environmental theme here, across the country, Sustrans, who are a walking and cycling charity who are noted for the creation of long-distance cycle routes, often along dead railway lines, have installed trios of sculptures of local personalities near to park benches. The idea being that you go for a walk, stop to rest on a bench, and ponder the legacy of the people depicted. While there's several across London as a whole, the ones in Central Park, Harold Wood, include a rare physical appearance of King Henry VIII, who used to go hunting in the area and own property here. He probably did both in a lot of what are now the London suburbs, but Havering seems to want to claim him as their own. Here, his neighbours are Harry Eccleston, who lived nearby and who designed the first banknotes in England, 1970 issue, to feature people, and Dick Bouchard, who founded Romford Drum and Trumpet Corps, a youth military-style marching band. Quite an eclectic mix. Off the A13, again, there's four slightly odd metallic towers across two successive junctions about 12 metres high, lined with LEDs. These are the Litmus Towers, designed by Jason Bruges, a London-based artist, designer and architect. They show numbers, and while they may appear random, they do have a purpose. One shows light levels at Tilbury, its neighbour shows the tide levels. At the other junction, one stands next to a wind turbine and reports its generated power, while the other monitors traffic numbers entering Raynham. The idea behind these towers is to basically allow people driving past, people walking past, to get more of a, a sense and a connection to the environment that they're in, rather than just passing through it. So now you know. For a different sort of entertainment, Romford is home to one of the last two surviving Greyhound stadiums in London, the other's in Bexley, but I'd say there was more to do in Havering. I mention this fact partly because I've talked about two now-demolished ones elsewhere in London, in Walthamstow and Wimbledon, and this kind of demonstrates how popular greyhound racing used to be. I mean, there were 33 in London alone. Uh, now there are only 24 in the whole of Great Britain. I mention it also because, remember I started by talking about Underworld? They said that some of the tracks from their wonderfully titled fourth album, Second Toughest in the Infants, including the referenced Born Slippy, were named after dogs who ran here on one of Underworld's visits to the stadium. 
I guess when you make electronic dance rave type music, you can call your tracks whatever you like. It's not that it matters. Not sure what New Order's excuse is, though. If you fancy something gentler, Upminster is noted for having a traditional windmill. Built in 1803, it's a listed building that served as a corn mill until the 1930s, before being somewhat gutted and left to rot. Fortunately for historians and visitors, it's now owned by a preservation trust who are currently trying to restore the mill to working order. It's just under 16 metres tall with four sails, each individual sail being around 10 metres in length. The windmill, like Havering itself I guess, is mostly white. Curiously, it stands in a large lawn, almost otherwise completely surrounded by residential housing, just outside Upminster Town Centre. In researching this podcast, I also found out the music video to one of the songs I listened to a lot when I was at university, Never Never by The Assembly, Vince Clark and Fergal Sharkey, both of whom have done other, bigger things, was filmed there. And this struck me as odd until I realised Vince Clark was born in what is now Redbridge Borough and grew up just over the current Essex border in Basildon, which is literally the next town along from Upminster. Also agricultural, and also in Upminster, is Upminster Tithe Barn. The building was built in the middle of the 15th century and is 18 by 12 metres in area and 45 metres high. It's a wooden box frame, oak mainly, with a thatched roof and is a very dark coloured structure. It's unclear what it was originally used for, probably the storage of grain, corn and hay by its owners, which was originally Waltham Abbey, then the manor at Orminster Hall, but it seems to have remained in some kind of agricultural use even after the local council took ownership in 1937. These days it's another one of those hyper-local museums called, confusingly, the Museum of Nostalgia. To be specific and precise, it is a museum dedicated to the history of domestic life focusing on agriculture. Their website says they believe they hold around 14,500 artefacts of domestic and agricultural use, ranging from Roman times to the present day. Niche. My final observation about Upminster is its name. The Up could either refer to high ground or be a hierarchical component to the other element. Minster. The Church of St. Lawrence, the minster in question, was built in the 13th century, though there had been a notable religious building here since at least the Norman Conquest, and the town is named after it. Apart from its age, and churches that old have a tendency to be pretty cool places in more than one way, it's notable for being the location of the first accurate measurement of the speed of sound. In 1709, scientist and local rector William Durham, so it may well have actually been his church, stood on the church tower here and, with the age of a telescope and a regular pendulum, tracked how long after seeing a distant gun being fired, he heard its blast. Given that the guns were fired from specific places whose distances were known pretty accurately, including other churches, he used the same triangulation skills used over half a century later in Hounslow, see kids, maths is useful in the real world, to calculate the speed the sound had travelled. He calculated the speed at 1,072 Parisian feet per second, a distance I was not previously aware of, and one I trust I never hear of again. One Parisian foot is, not an OnlyFans, 325 millimetres, so this works out at about 348.4 metres per second. Modern calculations state the speed of sound is 343.2 metres per second, so that's pretty close. Also, this also assumes standard temperature of 20 degrees Celsius. It's not clear from the references what time of year he did this, The speed of sound is quicker on a warmer day, so 348 metres per second is the speed of sound at around 29 degrees. Assuming perfect conditions, terms and conditions apply. The value of your speed of sound may go down as well as up with market conditions. So, Havering. Jess said it's not the best borough in London, I'm sure. I'm sure there are better ones. Well, it's not my place to rank the boroughs, but Havering doesn't seem that bad. I mean, it's obviously not Camden. Your mileage may vary on whether that's a good thing. Equally, it's not, I don't know, Sutton or Bexley. Thank you.
Well, that's about all for this pod, which is just as well because I've had so many issues in recording it. And it's time to bid farewell to this whistle-stop tour of those boroughs of London people generally don't go to. What have we learned? That there's a lot more open space than perhaps you realise. Also, some very large manor houses. Every borough has something cultural and historic to note, and every borough is interesting. And most of them have a park run. Although I'll grant you, some boroughs are evidently less (laughs) worthy of an overnight stop than others. But what would I say is the most underrated borough? Good question. But overall, probably, I'd have to say... Bromley. It just seems to have a lot more of interest in it than you might expect. Other boroughs worth the journey, I'd say, include Hillingdon, Brent, Ealing and Waltham Forest. I don't wish to incur the wrath of Londoners by talking about the borough I found least reason to visit, but let's face it, Wandsworth was never in the running for most underrated borough. A bit of podcast housekeeping. I'd like to give a shout out to Stefan Ange, the hosts of the All Shit I've Learned Abroad podcast, ostensibly because they gave me a shout out in their recent 2022 Travel Resolutions episode. Also, they suggested they should be exploring their hometowns more. Well, here you go. I'd also like to mention two tweeps, SGS writer-editor and Orangelic, for subscribing to my Patreon, details of which are in my end credits. I know I don't offer much in return to your faith, but I do really appreciate it. I would say it pays for my beer, but it doesn't. Join me next time when I, to be honest, I don't know. It's planned to be a pod about packing mistakes, but we'll just see how that goes. Until then, don't argue over board games. If you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass Bonus by Kai Angel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye.